When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to get your MBA and you've got a few questions. Well, we've got answers. Welcome to the MBA podcast, the spot for honest and actionable advice about business school. For more information, check out our site at thembapodcast.com. Now, here's your host, David O'Brien. All right, let's talk about resumes and some other stuff. So how long should my resume be? One page, maybe two, but ideally one. I've been testing out ChatGPT and not gonna lie, it's pretty great at resume review. As I've stated earlier, it seems to be extremely good at condensing writing, so use it to condense your resume. You could even feed stuff into it that's in prose, normal, written format and have it pull out the stuff into a resume type of format. I'd encourage you to have no more than three bullet points per job or academic institution. Directors always get a laugh out of the person with seven bullet points under one job heading. This just honestly is not how resumes should be. Let's put it this way. If you get into booth, you'll go through what my wife did, which was an extremely thorough and lengthy resume review and revision process mandatory she had to reduce her resume to one page and no more than two bullets per job title and academic institution katie has three patents with boeing a few pending and she's already got a master's degree aside from the mba she's worked as a ux researcher she's recruited to play d1 lacrosse traveled to korea to teach professional blues dancing so on and so forth she with that background was restricted to one page Be realistic here. If you're a 26 year old with four years of work experience under your belt after getting your undergraduate degree, you really don't have enough experience to fill multiple pages. Even if you somehow do, once you're in business school, you'll have to reduce it to one page because guess what? Employers and admissions directors just don't care that much about how awesome you think you are and how much passive, weirdly worded sentences you can fit into a single bullet. As a second test, have someone who is not in your career field and ideally not in the business career field, like at all, a financer, investor, or something like that, read your resume. If you're odd, act as the catalyst to a 2 million USD YOY ROI while leading 10 reports to meet clients KPIs sentence doesn't make much sense to them. It won't make much sense to a director. Remember, directors don't have MBAs. Right. Don't go all weird and write a bunch of nonsense in your resume. To put it in perspective, the awesome acting group at Booth does a yearly skit where they make fun of and discuss the most overblown resume bullets from that year's applicants. You know, increased profits by 500 million U.S. dollars in a single quarter actually translates to I was an intern getting coffee for a giant tech company that was making a buttload of money. Don't undersell yourself, but don't be that $500 million dude. Also, you don't need to include US dollars after everything. Know your audience. At least at schools in the US, the dollar sign indicates US dollars. If you have some other currency to use, don't convert it to US dollars. That would make more sense. So just because you see US dollars in a bunch of LinkedIn applications doesn't mean it's the brilliant thing to do. 
If your career field requires it later in life, that's fine. When you're applying to business school, it's just kind of dumb. Um, yeah. Again, have someone without a lot of depth knowledge read your resume. If it's nonsense to them, it's likely nonsense to a director. Ask ChatGPT to give you an outline for a one-page resume. Then, in normal English, tell ChatGPT what you did at your last job, what you studied in school, and what you volunteered for, and ask it to reformat reformat it into a resume. Keep iterating on this process, get human involvement, and have someone else read it. Then, then iterate again and again. And I think you'll be surprised. I'm finding GPT is very good at concision. Um, also, there's a zero ethical issue with using ChatGPT to help you with a resume as long as it doesn't make stuff up for you. Now, one caveat, every time I've had ChatGPT um, generate a resume for me, it double spaces it which obviously doubles the page usage. You, you don't need to double space your, um, your resume. And on that note, it should be uh, Times New Roman or Arial is fine. Font black, obviously uh, no color whatsoever. 12 point. And if you want to highlight anything, you know, if you want to do uh, level headings, that type of stuff, just use either bold underline or italicize don't use larger font right you run out of room as you start using larger larger font so bold italicized um, underlined whatever for your level headings uh, make sure you're clear and concise don't use weird wording like we talked about there should be absolutely zero typos on your resume that is unforgivable um, consistent formatting this is incredibly important if you if you have let's say two different jobs on there and one is listed with bullet points and the other one is listed in numbers. That's an issue. If the, let's say they're both in bullet points, but one is double indented and the other one is not, unless they're deliberately supposed to be subordinate to each other, that's incorrect format. It's a single page. This is an area personally where I pay a lot of attention, but I know all directors pay a lot of attention to it as well. I get asinine with this in terms of everything. That's um, the military member in me that, you know, you should fill out paperwork properly. Um, you should have the common courtesy to spell check your work, especially nowadays. But I think directors are a little more forgiving with um, application errors, text box, text box errors, essay errors, that type of stuff. But I think universally, none of them are forgiving with typos or format issues on a resume. Additionally, if there's any concern about, you know, let's say you have an old computer and you're using like um, Microsoft Office for uh, like, what was it, a 2007 version? And you're worried that when it converts into the 2020 or whatever the new version is, that it's going to mess it up. I'd really encourage you to convert your resume into a PDF. That way, you know, every every college in the world can open a PDF. Every computer in the world can open a PDF but they won't ever change the formatting. So convert it to a PDF. And finally, two major things to show. Um, when trying to pick out what to highlight in your resume, look at highlighting your upward trajectory, if there is one, be it within a company or you know, company to company, if you're, if you're jumping between them, and leadership potential or leadership initiatives, just showing that you have taken on leadership positions. This doesn't necessarily have to be a ton of direct reports, right? If you are an 04, which is a major in the military, you might have something like 50 direct reports and then something like thousands of indirect reports. Civilian people 
typically at 27 years old or so, not that a major would be 27, but a civilian person applying to an MBA school isn't going to have that sort of giant scope. That's just usually not how it works. Ideally, though, you'll still highlight if you had subordinates, direct reports that, um, well, report it directly to you. If you don't, though, this is not a huge issue, right? Let's say you're a doctor or a teacher or whatever you may be. You still want to try and show some sort of, if it makes sense, the the leadership and trajectory, um, upward trajectory and leadership is a pretty hard theme. If you can't meet that, though, because, again, maybe a doctor, teacher, something like that, you didn't have a ton of actual direct reports or employees under you, you still want to show a kind of habit of going above and beyond and seeking more responsibility. So figure out some way to do that. Okay, that's about it for resumes. Let me know, um, especially if you're listening to this on Spotify, there's a little question and answer section. Please let me know if you have other questions. Uh, Let's move on to scholarships, though. So really, external scholarships are, I... I've never had much luck with them myself. Additionally, they get fewer and further between as you go to grad school. Most external scholarships are specifically for um, undergrad. So I don't have a lot of advice for that other than maybe use, well, obviously use Google um, and try and figure that out if you can. I don't know of many people that have um, a ton of luck with the smaller scholarships. When I interview people on this, I'll see if they have any of the major um, fellowships or scholarships. Um, but yeah, in terms of external scholarships, I'm not going to be able to be much help with that. Ideally though, you're probably here to hear about, um, school scholarships, how to ask Harvard for more money or for Booth to give you a scholarship at all. So to be clear, this is about scholarships from the school itself. To my knowledge, none of them are need based in graduate school. They're all merit based to be clear. This means it no longer matters like what your FAFSA is or how low of an income you might have. Graduate school is kind of a different game entirely from undergrad school. So it's all merit-based. I know for a decent amount, the school I worked at and when my wife applied to Booth, they only look at your resume or not sorry, not your resume, your application. They only look at your application, which includes your resume to determine if you qualify for a scholarship. There is one on the good side, there's no additional scholarship application on kind of the flip side of that. You don't have the, there's nothing else to show, right? Either you get a scholarship or you don't. Now, regardless of what school you apply to and regardless of being awarded a scholarship or not, you should ask for more. Now, if you're fully scholar, obviously don't be an idiot. Like that's good. Just say thank you. Um, But even if you have a decent scholarship, you should still ask for more. Right. The cost of school is absurd. Now, here's the key, though. You must include something new about yourself. If you do want to include something that was already in your application or if you want to touch back on it again, maybe because you have nothing else new to share that you think is compelling, I'd still say go for it. But you really need to cast it in a new light and you need to do so with a bit of a delicate hand in that you don't want to come across with some sentence that equates to maybe you didn't miss or maybe you didn't read this part and you just missed it in my application. That would be a bad look. Uh, But essentially, the reason I started telling you with or started this process off by telling you that in most schools, your application is your scholarship application is that they've already considered it, right? So if you just say, 
hey, I'm not sure if you noticed, but I'm a school teacher and I make $40,000 a year. I need more money. Don't be surprised when you get some, you know, cut and paste reply from an admissions director saying, hey, we've considered you. You've still been denied for more scholarships. You got to give them something new. You got to give them a compelling reason. Um, Be authentic. And if you feel awkward asking for money, you can simply say so. But admit that the amount of debt is scary to take on, even with the ROI that it promises. Being honest will get you pretty far. Um, I will say that going to the school to meet and talk with a director in person is a really weird move. Um, I had it happen quite often, and I can't say it was ever a particularly positive experience, nor did I ever, and this isn't complete, um, you know, this isn't like an exhaustive survey, but I, all of my, all of my peers at the school I worked at and, and myself more or less found those interactions kind of weird. Um, you got to be a bit pragmatic with this, be a little bit more, um, sales mini in your, in your, um, behavior here, you want to make sure that the person you're asking for money is comfortable and going there and sitting face to face with someone and telling them your, your sob story and asking for more money. Generally, the people you're going to talk to aren't actually the people that make the decision. It's usually a, when they say a committee, it might not actually be a committee meeting in a room, but usually it's multiple directors, especially the higher ups, essentially in a virtual type of room or an asynchronous sort of meeting, looking at a gigantic pool of people and making business decisions. If they have the money, they will give it out. If they don't, there's no incentive not to give it out. But what I mean by that is that, you know, if you get assigned a director, if you got assigned Bill and you ask to see Bill face to face and you give him a half hour story where you cry and laugh and you become best buddies and then you ask him for another $40,000, it's just kind of weird. And at the end of the day, all Bill can really do is put your name back in the pool. Um, so it's a little bit of a waste of time. You're just trying to get yourself reconsidered. Ho- hopefully that makes sense. Um, but remember, ask for more money. You can absolutely ask uh, for what it's worth. And I know this is a totally rational fear, but because it makes perfect sense why you would have this fear, but it's actually completely irrational because I don't think it exists. Uh, the, the thing you're afraid of doesn't exist. I've never, ever, ever heard of a scholarship being reduced by asking for more of a scholarship. So you're not going to threaten, um, if you have $40,000 and you ask for more, I I've never heard of anyone taking away that scholarship. I'm not, I'm not even sure if they can do that. Um, I can't say as a categorical yes or no, but I would, I would get that fear out of your head. Um, in theory, you can discuss scholarships after you've accepted an offer to the school, this, I, I don't have a lot of data on this. I can tell you though, like I wasn't on the scholarship committee, but I can tell you that from my experience, my wife's experience, talking to other people that have successfully negotiated for more money, like my wife did, um, it, you have more power before you've accepted an offer. So just keep that in mind. Um, typically asking once, maybe twice again, both of those times though, you need to be presenting new evidence. So like if you ask once and they say, or, you know, an additional time, um, so you ask your first time for more money, present new information and they say, no, asking a second time seems strange to me because if you still have more information, why did you not disclose it up front? There, there's not a, 
there's no reason to play your cards close to your chest or vest or whatever the saying is in this situation. Um, put it all out there and ask for money. So really, typically you should only ask once, maximum of twice. Do not be that person that asks multiple, multiple times. I guess at the end of the day, nothing can really happen if you've already been offered and offered some sort of scholarship and you ask them 18 more times, I, I don't think they're going to take the scholarship away or deny you admittance. Um, but I just encourage you not to do that. But anyway, main sentiment here is ask for more money. You have every right to do not feel, don't feel ungrateful. I know it's incredibly difficult. If all else fails though, just be authentic in your email. Typically you will email the uh, a director. Um, that's another thing I actually probably should mention. Uh, not sure how every school does it, but I know of at least two cases, the, the one I worked for and then uh, Booth will typically assign you, if you're accepted to the school, a, a director to, to contact and to ask any questions to. This is typically the director that you will submit a request for more scholarship money from or to. Uh, they'll probably send it to the committee or whoever decides on that, but they'll be your point of contact. And I guess if all else fails, um, if you if your school doesn't do that sort of thing, you would just look at sending it to the general admissions email unless they have a specific process, obviously, and then follow that. But all right. Yeah. Be sure to ask if if all else fails, just be authentic and say, hey. I feel really awkward asking and like I'm being ungrateful, but please understand that when I'm looking at, you know, $150,000 worth of debt, I, I really feel like I have a responsibility to say, hey, can I get some sort of scholarship? So um, go for it. Be authentic, but be sure to ask. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Just do it. Now, I want to talk briefly about the waitlist process and reapplying. So, We've touched on this in other areas, but the waitlist is, I can promise you, it's a, it's a genuine interest in your application. Most people who apply, let's say to Harvard, are denied. If you are waitlisted, that's for a reason. You know, directors more often than not deny people. So it's not like they're afraid to hurt your feelings or don't want to deny too many people. There's no reason if they didn't have a genuine interest in you for them to waitlist you. Like, the only possible reason that you could be waitlisted is if there is a genuine interest in your candidacy. Now, this is a bit of a behind the curtain sort of look, but the truth of it is when they are shaping a class, right, when they want to determine is the class going to look like predominantly male or predominantly female, that can be part of the consideration around a waitlist. I know it's not super fun to hear, but that's the that's part of the truth about it is that if they've admitted X amount of men, they might put you on a wait list because they need to keep room open for more women. That is never something that's actually, you know, they can't have quotas, that type of stuff. And technically they do not. And that's fine. But it's just kind of currently how it works. And the reason I mention that is that I really want you to know I have known plenty of waitlisted candidates 
through my wife, Katie, when I, when I look at them or, or even people I actually, you know, I, I've clicked, oh, this person should definitely be accepted. And I followed their trajectory throughout their application process. And I find out they get waitlisted. It baffles me. I, I cannot see a rhyme or reason to why people are waitlisted. Some candidates are just, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a complete expert on everyone that should ever be admitted to an MBA school, but I've seen plenty of applications where I feel like they have every reason to be admitted and they're waitlisted. So the reason I mention that it is rare, but I do want to give you the hope that you may just be caught on the wrong side of a numbers game, which sucks, but it's not a judgment on your character. I think being waitlisted is one of the toughest parts for your sense of self-worth and your ability to keep going. Uh, do not view it as bad. You're very, very close. Um, tiny little things can make a difference with the waitlist. Now, what do you do when you're on the waitlist? Whatever the school tells you to do. So uh, the school I worked at would send, I think we would ask for another essay, essentially. Write that essay, right? Answer the prompts and, and that's it. Uh, don't go overboard and crazy with, again, showing up at the school and trying to talk to a director one-on-one. -on -one. If you have genuine questions and you happen to be there, that's fine. Again, though, just, just be aware of, have some self-awareness, know how you come off. Don't put yourself or the director in an uncomfortable position because generally they're, so they're certainly not going to be the person that decides if you get on or off the wait list. That is much more that it's a much bigger process than just talking to somebody for one day. Additionally, you know, they, they might not even be the person that's in that committee for getting people off the wait list. So they might love you and think that you're great, but all that they can really do is really nothing. Um, and the reason being is that in the name or for the sake of remaining equitable, the wait list process has to be standardized. Meaning if the school I worked for asks for an essay, we have to ask, obviously, every waitlist candidate for an essay. If you submit a video essay, we cannot accept that because we didn't ask for that. We didn't ask every candidate for that. If you come in and you talk to a director and you think that that's going to tip the scales in your favor, it almost literally can't because that would be unequitable and unfair, right? Let's say, um, let's say you live in Chicago and you go into booth to talk to a director when you're on the wait list. That's cool. Logically, I wouldn't blame you. And you know, if you know that you come off well and you have some authentic questions and you kind of want to just hint at, Hey, you know, yeah, I'm also waitlisted. Um, that might not be a bad thing, right? But what if, you know, you live in China and you can't afford to fly to Chicago and have a, you know, 30 minute chat with a director that might not even be your director. They might not be there that day or whatever. That's why it's not equitable. That's why it's not fair to actually make decisions based off of anything other than what the school is specifically asking for. Um, additionally, I, this always was tough, but we would get tons and tons of emails from waitlisted or rejected candidates that said, what parts of my application do I need to improve? Categorically, you will never get an answer to that whatsoever. Do not waste your time asking it. No school is ever going to tell you what you need to work on just as a flat out rule. Um, yeah, if you're waitlisted, I would tell you that small tweaks need to be made. Um, you know, compare yourself to the, the class averages. I would tell you in my experience, let's say you got a 728, but we discussed earlier the 730 on the GMAT is, is a good score. I don't 
think that that's really a, a great area to spend a lot of time to get like two more points on a test. Maybe, you know, maybe you could, I, I wouldn't discourage you from retaking the test and if you get a better score, cool. But I would really kind of work on specifically with that school. Like let's say you're waitlisted for Harvard and they ask for another essay or whatever they ask for during their waitlist process. If possible, I would really tell you to work on the why Harvard part of your application. That in general is a, is a good place to start. Um, if, if though, you know, you're missing, let's say you're a non-traditional app applicant and you have maybe an English undergrad or an English master's like I have, you might want to do like an MBA math or something like that. Cause maybe you have an okay GMAT or GRE score, but you're thinking mm, maybe, you know, an okay test score and a non-quantitative undergrad, maybe that's not doing it. Maybe I do need to add a little bit more to my quantitative skills. That would be a good self-analysis of a waitlisted application. And that's, of course, if you get denied and have to completely reapply the next year. Now, on that note, let's talk about if you're denied. Remember, the majority of people who apply to these schools are denied. I have seen extremely good candidates get denied for various reasons. In general, um, how do I say this nicely? If there is a glaring issue in your application and you are completely unaware of it, this is kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect where nothing I'm going to say or anyone is going to say will ever assuage you of your your, um, overabundance of self-confidence. And good for you, I guess. But there's probably nothing anybody can do to help, right? If you are the world's worst communicator and you write a terrible essay, but you still submit your application and then are genuinely confused as to why you were denied to one of the top schools, I I don't know if it's worth anybody helping you. Like what what I would tell you is quite honestly, because I can't stand this attitude. If you get denied to a school and you feel like they obviously just are stupid and don't know what they're talking about because obviously you're a shoe in uh, I would tell you to go elsewhere. Like you might make it into an MBA school eventually, but you know, you're, you're not the type of person that needs to be leading the, the free world um, in business. If you're the type of person though, that gets denied and you're crushed, I'm so sorry. I completely understand. I remember our first experience with the MBA was a very quick denial letter from Harvard Um, you know, I, I understand the pain that you're going through when you're trying to look at your application. Chances are that if your original sentiment is one of, yeah, you can be pissed. Like I, I'm I'm a dude. I process most of my emotions through getting angry first. Right. But you can be pissed. But then if you're really disappointed, like, man, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Chances are there's probably not a single glaring area of weakness in your application that you're not already aware of, right? You don't have to do this huge amount of self-discovery. Again, if you're, if you're, that's if you are basically in the mind of, okay, yeah, I need to work on my application. If you're in the mind of how could they not accept my application? It was perfect. Chances are, I'd still love you to have a chance to be self-reflective and be a more humble person. There, there may be a part of your application that needs a ton of work. Either way, that was kind of a long, maybe useless bit of fluff there. But what I'm getting at is um, in general, unless you have somehow massively missed the point of how to create a good application or be a remotely self-reflective person, there probably isn't a single part of your application that absolutely sucks. Now, if there is, 
and you're a self-reflective person, you already know it and you don't need to do the identification process, right? Work on that part that was obviously a, if you have a 500 GMAT, you know that your chances of getting in are very low. When you, if and when you get denied, work on upping your GMAT score. That would make perfect sense. Like good for you for still going for it and good for you for, you know, knowing um, that you probably didn't have a good chance, but going for it anyway, that's cool. Uh, But you know what to work on. Now, if you don't, if you're kind of stuck where you have, you know, a decent GMAT score, decent GPA, uh, maybe a great undergraduate college, good career trajectory, you think your resume is okay. You obviously have no idea what your recommenders said. And from everything you can tell, your essay is, you know, your essays are decent. That's a very tough spot to be in. And a natural tendency is to say, hey, directors at Harvard, can you tell me why you reject me? They'll say no. And that's that. It, it's an incredibly tough place to be in. Um, the first thing I can tell you is that reapplying does not look bad. The only time it gets kind of, and this should be self-evident, I, I had a gentleman and my heart broke for him. It was his 12th time, 12 years of applying to this school. He applied and got denied 12 times. Part of me wanted to like give him a hug and say, I'm sorry. And then part of me want to say like, dude, how are you not getting the message? Like move on. It's, I mean, there's something to be said for like chasing your dreams, but then there's also, yeah. Anyway, um, reapplying does not look bad. Okay. Within reason. Um, I I'd say if you get denied three times, right. And that's three years because the, the top schools, you can't reapply within the same cycle. So three applications, three years, if you get denied three times in a row, you know, I would probably move on again, though, if you're the type of person that's going to apply a fourth, fifth and sixth time, nothing I'm going to say is going to dissuade you from that anyway. So you do you. But when you reapply as as tough as this is, um, when you don't have a glaringly obvious low point in your application, this is going to suck, but you need to redo the whole application. I know that's terrible, but here's what I can tell you. Um, There is a essentially a data management system out there that most schools use. And what I mean by that is kind of like, uh, what is it? The Epic system for medical where, you know, if you have a version of my chart or something, which seems like every hospital out there uses some version of my chart, which is serviced by Epic, it may look different, have different logos, but it's basically the same software. Same thing's kind of true for most schools. What ends up happening is like when I looked at reapplicant, reapplicants applications, um, literally side by side, I could click back and forth between last year's essay and this essay, last year's letter of recommendation and this one, the resume, everything. It's super easy to compare the two. I don't, my, my gut feeling on it is that this was not intended for, um, you know, the, the process of being like, Oh, did you change anything or did you copy and paste? I think it's just how the data is kind of, kind of collected in your application that when I'm scrolling through it, I'll see different sections where it says resume and it'll say, let's say you applied a couple of years ago. It'll be like 2020 resume. And then right next to it, it'll say 2021 resume. So I don't think there's anything like malicious going on there. But what I'm getting at is that it's incredibly easy for directors to look back and forth between your previous applications. And if you just copy and paste stuff, again, directors are human. I'll be honest. It kind of comes off as an insult. It kind of comes off, um, you know, that soft, fluffy, like, 
Dunning-Kruger talk I had at the beginning of this about, you know, if you are so lacking in self-awareness that you think your application is perfect and you just resubmit the same application, I can almost promise you that's going to come off as an insult to the director being like, do you think that we just didn't read your application? Are you this confident in your abilities that like, obviously we just misread and we need another opportunity to see how excellent you are. That That's how it comes off. It, at, that's maybe at worst, at best, it comes off as pure lazy and like you have no actual desire to get into an MBA school. Uh, so it's tough. It's definitely tough. Um, you know, I would say in reality, if you feel like your resume, if you put a ton of work into your resume and it's clear and you've had a couple of people read it and they say, yeah, I understand, even though I'm not an investment banker, I you know, more or less understand what you're saying here. But importantly, you know, when I read this, I can say, oh, it certainly looks like you got promoted or you did well. That sounds like a good resume to me. I wouldn't worry too much about changing the bullets and the wording in that case, simply because like a resume is a supposed to be like an objective um, reflection of your past experiences, which isn't necessarily going to change. So if you feel like your resume is already okay, I personally, if I looked at your resume and was like, oh, he didn't change it from last year's application, that's fine. Maybe I'd like to see a couple of changes, even just a little bit of wording, just to show that you gave it at least a once over. But, you know, if you feel really genuinely good and you have some objective measures saying that your resume is good, I don't know if you need to rework it. The same is not true for your essays. If you and I work together one-on-one and we decide that your resume or your essays are amazing and other people have read them and they think they're amazing, I still would encourage you to rework the essays. It needs to be something new. Um, yeah, it, it's, it can be difficult. I don't, you know, your, uh, your GMAT GRE, again, depending on, if, you, if you're a 730 and you want to spend six months before you apply next year to get to 740 or 750, I, that's fine. I'm not sure if that's really worth six months of your time. But if you truly identify that as the weakest part of your application, then that's fair. Move forward. Um, you know, I wouldn't say if you have a probably a, a 720, a 710 or a 720 or whatever the equivalent is in the GRE or above. I'm not sure if you were denied just because of the test. If you genuinely feel like you can score significantly higher with more study time, go for it. But yeah, um, it, it's tough. I, and I can't give you a lot of really good answers other than, you know, you need to rework or at least touch almost every part of your application again. Now, here, here's the hardest part. Do you need new letters of recommendation? Absolutely. Categorically. Yes. That is probably the worst part. You might need to ask if you're super confident that someone wrote a good recommendation for you, you'll, you'll need to ask them to rewrite it. I know that's tough. Um, but hopefully you have a good relationship with the person. If you have anything but an excellent relationship and if there's, you know, beyond the, the weird conspiracy theorists, like 1% in your mind where you're like, well, maybe they wrote a bad recommendation. If you're, if you're completely confident in reality that they wrote a good recommendation, it, it's fine to ask them to rewrite it. Right. And you should have a good enough relationship with them that you can say, Hey boss, like, I know this is a huge headache. I'm so sorry, but can you redo my, um, my, um, letter of recommendation. And remember they'll have a year between having to do it. So it's not like you're asking for that much, but if you are, you know, beyond or less than like that 99% confident, if you're like, well, you know, maybe I don't know this person super well, or maybe I know them, but they're, they're kind of weird and I'm not 
totally trusting what they may have put in the letter of recommendation, absolutely find somebody else to do a new letter of recommendation. Um, that's probably the number one thing I get from applicants is do I need new letters of recommendation? And kind of logically, I just want to say like, you know, buddy, you, you were denied. Of course you need new letters of recommendation. Why would you reuse them? And it also puts a little thing in our head uh, or at least my head. And maybe this is just conspiracy theorists, but I'm like, you know, are you aware of what they wrote? You shouldn't be, you know, the, how the letters of rec work is, uh, you don't send in your boss's letter of recommendation. Your boss gets an email link from the school and sends it directly to the school. Uh, so you should have no idea what is in the letter of recommendation. Hence, yeah, you should probably get a new one. All right. So um, first, or I guess last, um, I just want to apologize for how vague the the reapplication process is. But, you know, if you're in the reapplication process, you're in the midst of vagary and I'm so sorry. It is difficult. Definitely touch everything. Uh, try and improve on everything. This is a really big area to know yourself and know where to spend the most time um, and spend it wisely. But you should absolutely reapply if you have if you have the time. Right. If you uh, you know, my wife and I, when we applied, it was kind of that year or we were going to start our family. It was one or the other. And we got into we got in but we were not going to reapply the year after. And that, that's a personal choice that you'll absolutely have to make. But I can tell you from the other side, having worked in admissions, it looks totally fine. If anything, in terms of like expressing your interest in the school, reapplying the next year, basically in and of itself expresses your interest in the school. So um, go ahead and do it and hang in there because I certainly know that um, you know, we all have feelings despite what we may say, and they certainly get hurt by getting denied or waitlisted, but hang in there. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, my friend. I hope you're doing well and we will talk soon.